If you have a Bible this morning, I'd like for you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 26. My message today has been on my heart, not this title, but what I'll say today for a, a few weeks. And I want to title the message today, Will There Be Peace in Your Valleys? Now, obviously, that came from a song somebody sang once, Will There Be Peace in the Valley for You? Well, as a question to bring a gospel message, will there be peace in your valleys? Now, you may say, well, I don't receive any valleys. Okay, then I'll change the title. Will there be peace in your tribulations? (laughs) Because valleys refer to those subdued times in our lives in which things aren't rosy as they are when you're on the mountaintops. But they are there. They confront all of us in this life. There will be tribulation. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Or all that live godly shall suffer persecution. So valleys encompassing that, all the adversity that we're going to have in our lives. Lots of Christian people cope well with adversity. But not all Christians do well in adversity. In other words... Referring back to the title, they don't have peace in their valleys, in their struggles. And many times their friends are the first ones to know, boy, I'm going through it this time. Oh, I don't know. This is really tough. And they have everything but peace. There's this difficulty and this struggle and the verbal identification of how hard it is and I don't know what I'm going to do. All of that seems to indicate there's an absence of peace. Peace is a mental state. It's a mental word. It has to do with freedom from agitation. The agitation is there. You just don't allow it to control you because you have something with which you can control the agitation. We call it peace. And we're not living in a peaceful time. We're not living in a peaceful world. I don't think it ever has been. But we are more aware today of the struggles of mankind and the difficulties and the attitudes and the meanness and the harm and the hurt and the pain and the agony and and all of that that's in the world today. We're surrounded by it. And yet, as Jesus said, he left us in a harsh world. And in this harsh world, he said, you, because of what I will do in your life, you will shine as lights in the world. And that's what we're called to do. And at some point in all of our learning and seeking and attendance and doing, we're going to have to learn that we are not given the freedom to complain or murmur or grumble about circumstances because God has given us something to replace all of that. We must live that way. So the question is, will there be peace in your valleys? Acts 26 and verse 13 through 18. Paul is speaking here to the king Agrippa, and he said, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. Now, he's referring back to an experience in Acts chapter 9. Acts 26 is Paul's testimony. This is like him giving his testimony, so this whole chapter is dedicated to that. And he says... Verse 14, And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking to me, and it said in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Is it hard for thee to kick against the pricks? Or a better word would be goads. A goad was a 
a long stick with probably a little metal point on the end of it in which the ox driver, when the oxen wasn't peppy enough, he would punch that oxen, and the oxen would kick at it, and it just a natural response. And that was to keep his attention in the way and to know that I'm back here and you're going to do it my way. So he said, how long will you kick against the goads? And verse 15, and I said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Now, stop there and go back to verse 10 in this testimony of Paul's. Paul describes himself as a really base person, a really bad person in what he did to Christians. And he said in verse 10, he said, Which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even into strange cities. This is what Paul did. This is what he was on the journey to do when that road to Damascus experience in Acts 9 happened to him. He was going up there to persecute, condemn, kill, whatever, these Christian people, trying to get rid of them. He had a thing against Christians. And so while he was on the way, uh, God captured him. And sometimes we think of all the people God wants to use, why would he use somebody who was like that? Why would he want somebody like Peter who denied him three times, uh, blasphemed and knowing him, and then told him, first among all the apostles, that he was going to feed his sheep? Why wouldn't he get somebody else? I don't know. I know that God has picked a lot of people to serve Him in various ways that I would not have picked or chosen. But when God does it, it always gets results. We don't always understand why He would do it that way, but God knows. You see, here's Paul who in Acts chapter 7 was watching a young man named Stephen, an eloquent, well-versed young man about to die. He gave the history of the Jewish people, and then he condemned the people who had crucified Jesus as being a fulfillment of Scripture. And they gnashed their teeth at him, and they took him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the Bible says they laid their clothes at the feet of one named Saul, which was Paul. So Paul has watched a man who is a Christian die, and he did it as though his face was like an angel and he held up his hands, and the last thing he said was, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. And such things have never been known. Who's like that? I mean, how could anybody have that kind of a constitution on the inside that you were forgiving people who were brutally not only calling your name but killing you? How can you do that? How can you cope with that kind of end time, this is your last moment, adversity with such, with such love? Well, anyway, Paul, who is going to Damascus, obviously has this on his mind. He can't forget what he saw. We've probably had experiences like that. Things happen. And then... Here's this voice and this brilliant light that shines, and, and he falls to the ground, and then he hears this voice in the Hebrew tongue. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who are you? Who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, 
All the things you're doing, you're killing this one, condemning that one, making this one suffer, you're doing that to me. They're living the life they're living because of my influence on them. Their lives are changing because of my influence. And you're killing them. Well, Jesus said this is going to happen anyway. All the world's going to hate you. But nobody likes hate. Nobody enjoys hate, especially when hate does things. But he said, Paul, you're persecuting me. I'm the one that you're persecuting. And look at verse 16. Acts 26 and verse 16. Jesus said to him, he said, But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee. You see that? Nobody else could. Nobody else would want to. But Jesus, who sees what we don't see, has a plan from the foundation of the world that he's about to put in play and appears to a man who is very mean and bad at this time. And he says to him, I'm going to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of those into which I will appear unto thee. I'm going to have a relationship with you for the rest of your life, Paul. I'm going to show you things I want you to do. Probably more so than any other man that we've ever heard of. This special person who was a killer, was a blasphemer, all of these things against Christianity. Verse 17, he said, And I will deliver you from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I will send you. Now here in verse 18 is what I want you to do. Specifically, three things. This is what my anointing on your life will compel you and inspire you to do. You will do, first of all, he said, you will open their eyes. Now, no minister can open anybody's eyes. But God can use men to say things, and then God can take the things said and open people's eyes. Not everybody in a congregation like this, not everybody that's in a church listens to everything you say. I think some people in some more traditional churches like I was in probably go to church because you're supposed to and you should, and that's a socially right thing to do. You don't really go to hear or to learn or to be changed or to be equipped or anything like that. That is meaningless. But you go because your parents did and their parents did and friends do, and that's just the right thing to do. So you can hear the truth. You can hear a good anointed word and never have your eyes opened. But God is chosen by the preaching of the Word to save the lost. So this is the way He does it. So He sends into the gatherings of people those whom He equips. It's not that they're any more talented than anybody else. It's just a special unction from God. And when they speak, God takes the words that they speak to those to whom He directs it. And they're informed about the condition of their life or a need in their life, and they see things they've never seen before based on what they heard. Now, somebody else could fall asleep. That happens, but God speaks to whom He speaks. And He said, but I'm sending you to Gentiles. You're going to open their eyes. That is, you're going to be persuasive. 
There's going to be an unction on your words, and what you say is going to cause them to take stock in themselves or see something they've never seen before. Their eyes are going to be open. You're going to point out this, and you're going to point out that. And we would call this teaching because we're all in a bland gray area until information from God comes to us. I mean, our brain just functions in a mode spiritually until God brings information that enlightens it. The second thing he said is what you're going to do. You're going to open their eyes and you're going to turn them from darkness to light. They're going to see things they've never seen before because of what you're saying to them. I still believe this is the function of the New Testament church. I still believe that's why we're here. I still believe that's what God is doing. I still believe a lot of people get used to that and get a little bit bored with it, but I still believe that's what God is doing. How many of you know that not everybody in here gets bored? I could also say how many of you believe there are people in a church setting that get bored? Well, I was one of them years ago. But if the promise is if Word of God is new every morning and you're looking for that newness and you're enjoying yesterday's newness, which is still new today, and you've seen it work and there's a joyfulness about knowing the truth, you look forward to hearing more truth. You pray that you will. And that means that when you have that kind of a mindset and your heart's like that, when you go to the meeting that God's going to anoint the speaker for you, for you, especially you. Because if you hunger and you thirst, you will be fed and filled. God responds. Grace is added to grace. When you want more, God will give you more. When you've got enough, you won't get any more. And when you've already heard that, you don't listen anymore. But to those who want more and enjoy what they've had, God gives more. God said to Paul, now these people don't understand anything about what you're going to tell them. Your message is a revelation that hasn't been given to people yet. It's a revelation for the church. And a lot of those people who don't know what you're talking about will know what you're talking about because I'm going to make sure that when you speak to them, they're going to get it. The third thing is that it will turn them from the power of Satan to the power of God. You will point out to them, and I hope we are doing this, and I hope all churches do, to show that all of us, without exception, we were all in bondage to sin. The sin was our Lord. It ruled us and controlled us. Genesis 4, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. If it can twist and distort things in life, make you feel this way, defeat you, it doesn't matter. The devil comes to kill and to steal and destroy. Jesus comes that you might have life. He said, now your message is going to include that. Because you couldn't turn somebody from darkness unless people know what darkness is. You can't be turned to light unless you know what light is. Those are just words unless you know what they mean. And God said, I will give you to explain to people what these things mean. Now, God said all of this to a guy who was murdering Christians. Murdering, maybe not in an extravagant number, but I mean, the word he was doing was making life miserable for people like us. A dreaded person. And so he said, you're going to do three things. And notice also he said in verse 18... 
after he said, from the power of Satan unto God, and then you see the word that, or it'd be like saying, now you're going to do that so that the following two things can happen. And the following two things he said was that they may receive forgiveness and an inheritance. Two things. I would say this morning that those two things are big deals. I would. Take inheritance first. We'll come to forgiveness next. Usually inheritance is depending on what persuasion a person is of theologically. For most, I think, the biblical stand on your inheritance is that it's eternal. First of all, you have been given something that can never go away. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 4 says, To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved for you in heaven. Now, there is no greater blessing. When you've been brought out of sin unto salvation, from unrighteousness to righteousness, from darkness to light, when you have that as an experience, not just an academic thing, but as a life experience, you've been brought out and all things become new. One of the things that is a cause of rejoicing is our inheritance. Rejoice not that demons are subject to you, Jesus said, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The great motivation to stay with this all the way to the end is that heaven is your inheritance. You couldn't earn it any more than you could earn your parents' inheritance. You can't gain it. It was given to you. It's something you did not have and could not have, but has been freely given to you. And I think that's the biblical way of looking at inheritance. In Acts 20 and verse 32, Paul, in speaking to the elders at Ephesus, he said, And now I commend you unto God and the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance. In Christ. Now, our inheritance also includes all the benefits that God has. These things are given to us. It's a package. Remember Psalm 103? Who forgives all thine iniquities? Who heals all of our diseases? Who redeems our lives from destruction? Who crowns us and so forth? This is what is given to you. Exceeding Abundant promises are given to us because this is God's good pleasure to give. God is a giving God. He gives His best. And so part of your inheritance in this life is that you can call upon the Lord in a time of trouble. Come boldly to the throne of grace and God will give to you. You have been given this by the Lord. If it's given, it's an inheritance. So we not only have the prospect and the promise of heaven at the end of this life, but in the meantime, we are blessed. 8,000 promises that all belong to us. They're all yes and amen in Christ and so forth. How many times that my favorite chapter, I think, in the Bible, Ephesians 1, how many times have you heard this? I pray for you, Paul said, that God will open your eyes and that you may see what is the purpose of his calling. And then he talks about your eyes being opened that you may know and see in the inheritance that he has in the saints. 
Did you know that you are God's delight on this earth? Me? Yeah. You. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. That's Zephaniah 3. Is mighty. He shall save, will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. You are the delight of God on this earth. You are his treasure. You're the only reason God is favorable to this earth. And when you're taken out of the way, this earth is going to reel to and fro with judgments. But the only thing on this earth that God delights in and is supposed to delight in is you and me. The change of our lives, the witness that we have to the world. Counting our lives to be that which belongs to God, yielded to Him. This is God's delight. And we're here, and it's the Father's good pleasure to give you His kingdom and ask, and you shall receive, seek, and you shall find, knock, it'll be open to you. Father does this for us. It's our inheritance. He does all of these things for us because that's what belongs to us. Now, He also said to give them forgiveness of sins. Now, that's what I'm going to talk about the rest of the morning is forgiveness. Because unforgiveness has many faces. There are many ways that unforgiveness confronts people. Somebody said in a quote one time, He who forgives ends the quarrel. Because people quarrel a lot. Maybe not so much face to face, but sometimes a man and his wife will talk about some event that happened, some mistake that was made in from somebody else towards them or some wrong that was done and they quarrel with each other about the other person. We call it backbiting. And they just seem to have these words of animosity and ill will and resentment. And words like that just seem to flow in sentences and in attitudes and the way you look and talk and, and act. A man named Gandhi, you've probably heard of Gandhi. He was a peacenik. And he said, the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. And that's true. It takes a strong man, a strong woman, a strong person to forgive some serious wrongs you've had in your life or that have been done to you in your life. Things that are like plagues in your mind, treatments you've had and, and unrighteous things that have happened to you. It takes a strong person to forgive. I have found that, though I wouldn't accuse anybody anymore and I wouldn't accuse myself, but I would imagine in light of what I understand about forgiveness, that there's a lot of unforgiveness in Christians. And it's a reason why a lot of promises don't come to pass and a lot of blessings don't rest upon people, their families, and they've never had anything such good happen to them. And it goes back to unforgiveness. It's a serious flaw in a person's life. Fragrance is the forgiveness the violet sheds on the heel that crushes it. Now, I got that out of another quote. I'm not that eloquent. You step on the violet, you smell the fragrance of it, it just surrenders to that. It just turns the other cheek. It just... Forgives and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's what it does. It doesn't hold a grudge. 
We don't remember our wrongs done to us. All we know is that God has blessed us and given us a way to overcome all these things. To forgive other people. What does that mean? Well, to forgive is to cease to feel resentment against. It's an act of your will. Everybody in here knows how you feel. Everybody, all of us, even most of you young ones, you've had things happen to you that really hurt you. It still hurts. One of the great hurts in life is rejection. Being rejected. Not accepted. Put down. Mocked. Made fun of. Excluded. And it's a painful thing. And sometimes you can't get away from it. And people do a lot of things to try to prove they're not rejected. They make a nuisance of themselves or they end their lives. How many times has a parent's word to their children caused that? Rejection. You always, and you can't, and you no good, and you not, and you not, blah, blah. The only great people in their life are their parents. And you can't measure up to their acceptance. You're competing with a sibling, a brother, sister, and they seem to get everything you want, and you all you get is just words, words that you can't, you're not going to, you'll never. And I'm wondering how many of those kids today are those who come to the place where they say, what difference does it make? I can't please them. I'm no good. I'm inferior. I'm a reject. I should have never been born. And out of that kind of a heart and atmosphere seeds resentment and unforgiveness and ill will towards others. If you have been hurt a lot, chances are in your life you will hurt a lot, hurt others. You've never had a tenderness about you, and therefore you don't know how to be tender. Nobody's ever been overly kind to you. You really don't know how to be overly kind to others. And you find your life talking about the fact that you're a victim. It's not fair, and so forth. Now, all of those things, that attitude, that's just, this is an attitude, it all indicates that you are full of unforgiveness. You don't use the word, and you'll deny that, but you are. You're unforgiving. You cannot get away from all the things that were done to you once in your past. You're full of resentment. Resentment. You see people that are doing well, you never did well, you resent that. You see that happily married couple here and it seems like it just works for them and you resent that because you go to the same church, heard the same word, it doesn't work for you. I'm not like that. I didn't get to all of that. And there's this kind of seething resentment. And so you look at people and you know what you do? You start looking for faults. Well, they're not perfect. I'll watch them for a while. Now, see, uh, you, uh, so you can sort of justify your unforgiveness or your resentment because... Well, you're critical. That's just the way it's, the devil has distorted and twisted and corrupted your whole life from the time it all started to the way it is now. Somebody said one time that when God forgives, let me read this for you. I think it's in Barnes' notes, that when God pardons sin, and forgiveness is pardon. 
When God forgives sin, He absolves us as sinners from all the condemnation of sin. Now, some of us, obviously, were more sinful than others. Would you agree with that? See, I don't think most of y'all ever sinned. A little bitty baby stuff, but some of us were just horrible. I think Paul sinned a lot. And to think that God, by a moment's act, just is willing to forgive you all that you've ever done as though you never did it. To look at you as clean, forgiven, as though you had never, ever sinned. And He accepts you like that. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. What a wonderful verse. God didn't just forgive me for what I said once. He forgave me of all the rottenness, the ugly things, the vile, putrid, damaging, awful things you did. Things you can't take back. Things you can't go back and undo. It's like when you pull the trigger, you can't stop the bullet and bring it back. When you release the arrow, you can't go get it and bring it back as though it wasn't released. It, whatever it does, it does. And God forgives you're released from all those sins. And he does this because of Christ. He said he removes the guilt of sin or the sinner's actual liability to eternal wrath on account of it. All sins are forgiven freely. The sinner is by this act of grace freed from the guilt and the penalty of his sins. I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. Jesus set me free. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Jesus set me free. You're welcome. That's all right. You're welcome. I'm just saying there is a level of joy that should enter into our lives simply because we're free from sin, from the penalty of it. We have no right to complain about yesterday because yesterday's been forgiven. We have no platform of protest against God for anything because everything that He could have judged us for and we were condemned about, He released us from it. And if you never get a dime in your life, if you never get a break in your life, the fact that you're heaven-bound is the most perfect treasure you could ever have. And if you cannot rejoice about that, then there are other things in your life that is suppressing it. I wonder if it could be unforgiveness. I wonder if it could be unforgiveness. Or without forgiveness, turn to Mark 11. This is what you have in your life if you do not forgive. If you hold resentments against. If you keep telling the same old tale about the same person, what they did wrong all the time, you are in unforgiveness. Now, you can go to church if you want to, but you're not going to get much out of it. Listen at this, Mark 11. You know verse 24. you got to love that. What things ever you desire when you pray, 
When you pray, believe you got it. When you pray, believe you have it. And you'll have it. What's the next verse say about prayer, though? And when you stand praying, what must you do? You must forgive. You mean that the one block he mentions about why he would not answer my prayer is because of my unwillingness to let go of something or somebody in my life? Say yes. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, our Father's art in heaven, hallowed be thy... And when we finish that, he said, but you must forgive. I mean, he made a point of that twice in the Bible. That when you pray, the only thing that can keep your prayer from working and God hearing it is your unwillingness to let go of somebody's damage towards you or what somebody did to you said, whatever it is. How bad could that be? What if it was molestation? I've talked to a number of women in my life, not very many men, but mostly women who in their childhood were molested and how that scarred the emotions and distorted the whole picture of sexuality and how I fit or I'm unclean or I'm no good because I've been abused or violated like this. And sometimes you hold that against the molester who may have by now have already died. A grandfather. I've heard that one. A grandfather or a stepfather or even a cousin or brother or somebody molested you, violated you, left you with an emptiness of self-worth that you're really no good. If people find out that this happened to you, nobody will ever like you or love you. You're going to have to go through life by yourself because you're just no good. It wasn't their fault. And there's just this hardness and ill will about somebody. You just wish they would die. Most of them already have. And you're still carrying this thing. What do you do with it? You forgive them. Huh, you've you never been... No, I never have. I have not. I don't know how you feel. I don't know what that's like. I don't. All I can tell you is that the Bible says when you pray, you must forgive. If you will not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. If I'm unwilling to forgive even that, then I am not forgiven. Are you all still in here? No wonder prayers aren't answered. It's how I feel about other people that I dismiss myself as having legitimate reason to feel this way because this was a big deal. You don't have a right to feel that way about anybody. Remember, you did things against God that was as bad, if God could identify it to you, that were vile. And He forgave you all of it. He doesn't hold it over your head and say, remember you better. No, he forgave you from the east as far as the east is to the west, the depths of the sea and all of that. That's how far he removed your sins from you. Jesus told a woman once, go and sin no more. Sin's death. And unforgiveness is sin. Unforgiveness, resentment, ill will, a burning memory against somebody that you can't get over is sin. It cuts you off. If you want to go to heaven, have a relationship with the Lord, you must forgive. The rape victim, 
who was left this way or hurt and whatever. I don't know. I don't want to get into details. How bad is it for that? I wish they would catch him and I wish they would do this to him and I wish they would surgically deal with him and I wish, I wish, I wish. That's pain. And who doesn't understand that? It didn't happen to us, but we try to imagine, you know, being a man, you try to imagine what a a girl or a lady must have gone through and some creature. Well, you, you can say, well, I don't blame her for feeling like that. Well, you can't commend her for feeling like that. Well, how would you feel? I don't know how I would feel. It didn't happen to me, but I know what the Bible says. You must forgive. God did not say you can forgive certain kinds of sins and other ones you're allowed to harbor because after all, that's just normal. He didn't say that. He said you've got to forgive. Or you were betrayed by a friend once. Somebody really did you wrong, took advantage of you, stole your girlfriend. Stole your boyfriend. Robbed you of your family. Identity something, whatever. Your life savings are gone. Things you worked so hard for. The Ponzi scheme. Oh, I lost $2 million. How do you lose $2 million? But I lost $2 million. You know what? To hear these people talk, their lives are a wreck. $2 million was their life. The savings they had was their life. And it just ruins them. And they can't get over it and they gnash their teeth against people. Do you realize that as long as you hold that attitude, I don't care if you go to church. I don't care what kind of experience you've had. You realize as long as you do that, you're missing heaven. You don't have the luxury. If you want to go to heaven, you've got to forgive everybody. I don't care what they've done. I don't care how bad it was. I don't care how mean it was. doesn't matter at all. Somebody murdered your mother, broke into your house, murdered your family, stole all your treasures, tore up your house, kidnapped your child. I just read on the news the other day, I don't read papers much anymore, but over in Pakistan, 25 little boys had been kidnapped because their parents had been given information to the other side or something. 25 little boys, innocent had nothing to do, as we would say, had no dog in the fight. And now they're going to have probably pay with their lives for something they had nothing to do with. Because somebody hates what they did. And they want exact revenge. I want to get even. And yet they never get even in situations like that because they keep on wanting to hurt and maim and kill people. This is unforgiveness. This is, in essence, what unforgiveness is. What about marriages that break up in divorce? She ran around on him. He ran around on her. She had an affair. He had an affair. And how painful that must be for a woman to know that the man she gave herself to and all of this, or she thought she was, and I'm sure she probably was, to realize that she's caught him in an affair with another woman. And she wonders how often, you know, when he said nice things to me, was he thinking about her? And then your mind starts going in that direction. Next thing you know, a root of bitterness. A root of bitterness steps in. A thing that is a seething pot. It's, it's like unforgiveness crock pot. 
And the more you see these things and you turn the heat up a little bit, it turns into bitterness. And it gets hold of your life and becomes like a root that bears fruit in your life. And it ruins your life. His affair ruins your life or her affair ruins your life. And every time he's gone out of the house, I'm going down to the drugstore, I'm going down to the grocery store, going down to the gas station. She just wonders if he's going out to meet somebody else because the suspicion is there. Maybe suspicion is natural in some things. I don't know. They can't forgive. They can't forgive. So the husband comes back to the wife. The wife comes back to the husband. And they say, I have made a terrible mistake. Yeah, tell me about it. And I am very sorry. I ask you to, what's the word they say? I ask you to forgive me. And she says, sometime, yeah. Or he says, all right, hold on. Let me turn to Matthew 18 about what I just said about mouthing some kind of a forgiveness. Matthew 18, the great chapter about forgiveness. I don't want to read all of this because it's pretty long, but you know the story beginning in verse 21 where Peter came to Jesus and he said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Jesus say, I say to you, not until seven times, but until 70 times seven, or as long as you have to, as often as you have to, you forgive. You forgive. Jesus tells a story. You know the story. One man owed him, I'm going to make these numbers up. One man owed him a million dollars and he couldn't pay it. He said, give me the million dollars. I said, I can't. I don't have it. But I, I, I beg you, I ask you, to forgive me and give me time. And the Bible says he forgave him the whole million dollars. The guy said, you mean I don't have a million dollar debt? No, you're free. I have forgiven you a million bucks worth of sins or debt. And you're free to go. And he goes out, as you know the story, and he found a friend of his that owed him $10. Ten bucks. Ten dollars. He said, pay me what you owe me because I need some money. Grab him by the throat. What kind of a guy is this that grabbed him? Give me my ten dollars. He said, I don't have it. And he turned him over to the people until he could get his ten dollars. Then the Bible says when that man that forgave him the million dollars heard about it, he called him back in. Verse 32. He said, oh, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you desired me to. Should you not also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had compassion on thee? I forgave you far more than you're unwilling to forgive others. Well, my parents didn't spend enough time with me. You didn't spend any time with me, God said. My parents never gave me anything. You never gave me anything. And I forgave you everything. And I don't look at you now as all your faults and failures. I forgave you. But let me tell you something about sincerity and forgiveness. In honesty and sincerely saying, I forgive you. Listen. Verse 34. These are two really thought-invoking scriptures. I mean really provoking you to thinking about something. 
Verse 34, And the Lord was wroth, and he delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due him. I thought he released him. I thought he released him back earlier, didn't he? Didn't he say back in there, he said, I forgave you all that debt because you desired me? I want you to think. And he delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due him. You know why he delivered him to the tormentors? Because he wouldn't forgive. He would not forgive a little thing when he was forgiven an immensely huge thing. Verse 35, so likewise, here's the point. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. You can mouth, all right, I'm sorry. You ever had your kids fight or get fussy and say, all right, tell them you're sorry. I'm sorry. No, you're not. I'm sorry. No, you're not. You said the right word. You're not sorry because if I turned my back, you'd punch him right in the nose. Because you didn't forget what he did. Or punch her in the nose. Girls fight too. I won't go into that. I've had to break up one or two of those in my life. Oh, squared off. I mean, ready to go and you get in the middle of them because if you don't, there's going to be hair and everything all over the floor. But anyway... You got to forgive. Oh, I prayed one night at the table before we ate. I said, Lord, I pray that my children will not kill each other before they grow up. <laughs> they got to laughing, old dad. Well, all dad yourself. All dad, that's a brand of sheep somewhere, all dad. But anyway, point of it is, if you don't mean it when you say it, it doesn't work. If you say it because this is a way to get out of this situation, all right, I'm sorry. All right, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So, you don't have to sing it either. But you just have to mean it in your heart. I'm sorry. I was wrong. I remember the first time I told my wife I was sorry when I was really wrong and how difficult it was, how hard it was for me to go and say, I'm sorry. She delighted in all of that, but I mean, it was hard for me to say all of that. Listen, I realized in my own life, I didn't grow up in a haven of rest. I can remember a lot of flaws in my life and feelings I had and a lot of times in rejection. I just wanted to sit in a dark room by myself. I mean, just a lot of times I just didn't feel worthy of anything. And nobody ever told me they were sorry about anything. It's hard for me to tell somebody else I'm sorry. Hey, life's life. But some of these things you go through with marriage and divorce and the kids, the way they grow up in that, and people are unforgiving. But if the wife says to the husband, I forgive you, what does that mean? Now listen to me now. There's more here than you're thinking about. Let's say they're on the verge of divorce. And he sincerely says, I'm very sorry. I have offended you. I can't think of any words greater than these words. I am very sorry. Will you forgive me? Now, what is she supposed to do? She's supposed to say, well, I'll tell you. I'll come back in three days and I'll tell you. 
No. Well, give me a couple of days to think about it. No. If you're a Christian and you go to church, you are obligated to forgive. You know why? Because as the Father forgave you, so must you forgive. But He did me wrong. I'm sure He did you wrong. We did God wrong also, and He forgave us. Now, she says, no, I'm leaving you and I'm divorcing you. I'm going to marry somebody else. How can you do that if he said, I'm sorry? You're obligated to be restored. He said he was sorry. You took a vow with the man or the woman. You're restored. Unless you have ill will and resentment. I haven't forgotten what you did to me a long time ago. I'm not coming back to you. It's all about unforgiveness. Well, I have this verse in the Bible about, you know, if for fornication or something, I'm free to divorce. So I'm getting really, what if he says, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? What do you say? Do you say, I forgive you? Then if you forgive him, then what do you do? Say, hit the road, Jack, I'm going somewhere else. Forgiveness is forgiveness. We go back and we make it right now. Oh, I don't want to hear that. I know people don't want to hear that. I could care less. Because you see, pain, pain, boy, the feeling that you've been done wrong, it's hard to forgive that. You take slavery in America. What group of people has ever in our history been treated worse in America than slaves? Can you imagine going back in the, in the early whenever this all started in the African jungles and taking people from their parents, taking you from your parents, putting you on a boat full of nasty white people? Ugliest sin, beating on you, you're scared, don't know where you're going, can't speak the language, you're kicked and smacked and you're brought to this country and then you're treated like animals. How could you not have great bitterness and resentment against white folks? Us. Most of you are white, in case you didn't know. How could you not have great bitterness and resentment against that? But how is it fostered? Well, it's passed down from parents down. You know, you can't trust these white people. And then look at that one. And they, they abused the slave girls, had babies by them, and then sold them as slaves. White people didn't want them if they didn't look white. Sell them. How evil can a race of people be? Now, let me tell you all something. I didn't do that. I'm pretty sure you didn't do that. I know I didn't. I wasn't there. I think it was an awful time, and I can see why in the natural sense that people would have such resentment against racists today. Such a view of, you know, white people and black people, and you can't trust they're a bunch of liars and these over here and this. and You teach that to your children because you're fostering hate when you teach that. And we have this problem today. It's a racial problem in many circles in America. And it goes back to where it started and the way it came forth. We've just never forgotten. Just never forgotten. There's a bitterness in our heart against color. And as Christians, we have no right to do that. We have no right whatsoever in this world 
to have animosity towards anybody for any reason. Now, you may not respect another person because of their lifestyle. If a man is a gambler and a thief, I don't care if he's green. I don't respect that. I have no ill will against him. I just don't have any respect for what he's doing. I don't have to. But if he offends me, I forgive him. You know why Jesus forgave people? One of the reasons he forgave them? Not because he was love on the cross. But he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They don't even know what they're doing. They don't know who I am. They don't know that doing this to a human being is vile and wrong. This is wrong. They don't know what they're doing. So, Father, forgive them. And if they had have known what they were doing, he would have forgiven them. It's the nature of God to forgive. If the nature of God is in you, then it's in your nature to forgive anybody of anything. Look at the terrorists and the Muslim problems today and, and the desire to kill. And the history is more than I could give. But the fact that you're not a Muslim and I want to take your life and end your life or your children, I don't care if they're innocent or guilty, the fact that they're there, I want to get rid of them. To kill, to bomb, to maim, to blow up, to preach hatred, to teach children to hate. And feel resentment against Americans or Jews or white people, mostly Americans and Jews, to want to kill me. I don't even know who they are. I've never done anything to a Muslim against a Muslim in my life. I'm pro-Jewish because salvation is of the Jews. I'm pro-Jesus. Whatever he was, I am. But I'm not against people who don't align themselves with him. I don't regard and respect terrorism today. Could you forgive somebody that blew your child up? What if they kidnapped your child and did one of those beheading things and, and sent you? Would you forgive them? I know. I agree. I, I mean, I know that'd be tough. But could you, as a Christian, forgive those people? Or would you want revenge? What would you do? I mean, there's a lot of ill will here. There's a lot of hatred, a lot of things going on. Ethnic wars, getting rid of a race or a breed of people. Even in the Muslim world, you know, the Sunnis and the Shias, they don't like each other either. They kill each other. See that going on today, especially in Iraq. And it's over an idea, a theory whether this, the offspring of Muhammad is to be the living ruler or do we vote somebody. It's foolish. But there's such a passion in these minds that have just been warped this way. All they can think of is just kill, kill, kill. And we do Allah a favor if we kill. I would much rather serve a God who forgives me of my sins and restores me to fellowship with Him and promises me that he will bless me in this life and take me to heaven when it's over. I would like a God of peace in my life. And how dare me let you keep me from having that peace. God forbid that I would let you keep me from going to heaven. But all the devil has to do is just rile you up and somebody do you wrong.
I don't care if it's over race, over some sinful thing or a terroristic thing, or in my great-grandfather's homeland, Ireland. You know, the Irish Protestant Catholic wars have been going on. They've been blowing up people for years. My great-grandfather, Thomas King, born in 1859, was born in the country of Ireland. That's where he came from. He was a good man. See, I'm Irish, too. Irish Jew. (laughs) Jewish-Irish. Well, I was really done wrong. What you're talking about today and these various things, they bring up pains this morning, or if you're out there, these things are bringing up painful experiences I've had in my life, and it tears my heart. Well, let me ask you, what are you going to do about it? You're going to continue to hold a grudge and resentment? You're going to seethe with rage and ill will and anger? Are you going to feed this thing from these talk shows that teach you how to feel ill will against other people, the conservatives against the Democrats? Are you going to keep feeding that thing? You're full of unforgiveness. Every time you slander and you gossip and you backbite and you tailbear, it's all a matter of unforgiveness. If you hold no ill will against a person, you do not try to hurt them. You don't do that. You crucify the flesh with its affections and lust. You don't allow yourself to get bogged down in verbal tirades against people that you think done you wrong or you heard did this or did that. They didn't do it to you. You know, again, back to the slave. I wasn't there in 1600. I like 20 better than 16. 2000s. I didn't hurt anybody. I didn't do that. Never had any reason to be mean or to hurt people like that. Never. And yet I've had people look at me and think, you know, I'd like to eliminate you. I know they didn't say that, but it's a look. I'm thinking, will you forgive me? Will you forgive my ancestors? Will you forgive? Will you release me from this bondage that your heart holds me in? Because every time any of these things I talk about, any time they come up, there is no peace in your life because of unforgiveness. The teacher at school, the preacher, the wife, the boss at the job, your neighbor next door, people that, who live in your memory with seething bitterness. And boy, a root of bitterness, that's another story. But when bitterness begins to take over in a person's life, it's terrible. Peace cannot rule in the presence of unforgiveness. You think of that. Those very few people you know in this world who seem to always have a good attitude, always able to smile, have a good answer, never seem to be tore up. I think they're people who have peace. They not only realize the magnitude of their forgiveness that they've been given, but the fact that they have been able by the same power that forgave them to forgive others. Sincerely forgive. I had resentment against my mom. My parents were divorced. My mother had a boyfriend. He would come to our house. And I remember as a boy growing up how I hated that because my friends knew this. It only added to insecurity. 
And I remember the time I would verbally say out loud, I hate you. If I could go with my daddy, I would. In fact, the day the sheriff came to get him, I was packing my box to go with him. And he told me I couldn't go, and I cried. I remember that as though it happened yesterday. I sat there and cried on the floor. 250 Level Street, upstairs, room on the left, right there beside the chest of drawers. A little cardboard box, putting shoes and clothes, and so I'm going with my daddy. You can't go. I remember I sat there and cried because I don't want to stay here, and I don't want to stay here. When I got saved in 1968, must have been about 1969, Body and I went to like a family conference or a Christian gathering down in Barclay Lake. There's a big kind of resort there, and we met from all around the area here. And I was brand new in the Lord, didn't know anything. And we got a number when we got there, and the number was the, a prayer group you were in every morning. My number was four. I'd go down to room 512, and they'd grow in room 512, and there would be 15 people in there, and I'm in that group, and we introduced ourselves, told where we were from, and shared a little bit, and whoever was a moderator of the group, he would kind of tell us something spiritual. Well, I love that. About the second day of this meeting, a lady there from Tennessee, her name was Joe. I can't remember her last name. Her husband's first name was Arthur, and he was a doctor. And she came up to me, and she kind of a a woman I wasn't too sure about, one of these kind, Brother Hamilton, can I talk to you? <laughs> See, I'm new. I'm brand new. I just came out. I mean, I'm still over. I mean, I'm new. And people like this, I'm thinking, uh, yeah. And so she sat down and she said, the Lord showed me something about you today while we were here. What was that? said, the Lord showed me that you have resentment against your mother. And immediately, because of the anointed moment, it all came back. Is this kind of like a... He said, and you need to go home and tell your mother you're sorry and you forgive her. Oh, man, I don't know about that. That's all she said. Left me to deal with it. And I remember I went home. Didn't want to do this. No, no. She's just some old religious woman trying to act spiritual. I went home one day and there's nobody there but mom. She's in the kitchen and I came in and how was your trip and so on and so forth and good and blah, 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 blah. And I said, I think if I had not done that then, I would not be here today. I think it would have been a brief moment of religious something. I said, Mom, there's something I want to tell you. Okay, you know, my mother was sort of like me. We were kind of alike, and, and everything was sort of frivolous and fun. And I said, I was in a meeting this week, and a woman revealed something to me that has been there for a long, long time. That's something I need to tell you. What? I said, I have held resentment against you since I was a little boy. I almost cried when I said it, but I've held resentment against you since I was a little boy. And... I want you to forgive me, and I'm sorry. And she started crying. She didn't know that I had that. She didn't know she had done that. You know, a hysterectomy at age 24 and the hormonal problems she had, and they blotched that up, and then the way she was raised. I mean, you know, the devil wads people's lives up in a rod. And I was just a little victim in her life, and she was a bigger victim, I guess. 
But I still remember sitting in that kitchen on Monroe Street. I know where I grew up. I know what the phone numbers were. But I remember sitting there in that kitchen on Monroe Street. My mother standing over there by the little stove. And I'm sitting there in a the little bitty area. And she was crying. She said, well, I'm sorry. You know, we had a hard time. And I said, I know you did. I know you did. I was just, I'm sorry. And she forgave me. I remember a weight just kind of like, I didn't realize I had this burden on my life. I just thought being angry all the time was just life. I didn't know you could have peace. If something lifted that day, I didn't sprout new wings, you know, for the backbiters to chew on. I didn't get anything like that new, but just something happened. There was kind of an ability to go a step further. I could move up the ladder now. I've been going through things my whole life about people I had to forgive. Have you? Remembering this problem or that problem? I think I can say this morning, standing here, I know it's true with her, with Bonnie, I can't think of a single soul in my life, anywhere, at any time, at any moment, that holds me in their bondage. I'm free from all people. I have no resentment, no ill will. There's a lot of people that I don't respect Maybe not so much what they did to me, but just the way they do. A lot of ministers I've known who were not sincere and were in it for money or for fame or something, they didn't offend me. I didn't have to forgive them of that. That was between them and God, but I don't respect that. But I have nobody I don't forgive. I have been talked about in my life since I've been here the last 30 years. I've heard a couple of stories said about me from people that knew better. But I forgive them, and I see them today. God knows I have no problem looking at them. Hey, how you doing? People who left the church back in 1990 when it kind of had a crack in the seams. And the stuff that was said. Phone calls made to other places about me. Don't invite him. Let me tell you about him. And then to tell a lie. Untruth. Using my children. And today, God knows I have no at all. None. I refuse to let somebody, any human being in my life, hold me in bondage. Because every time you have resentment against somebody, they own you. They own you. They did something once and you can't let go of it. They own you. No wonder Jesus said, if you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember, then go be restored. Because with God... You have no right to approach him when there are people in your life that you can't forgive. That's just the way it works. Well, what about people that have done you? What did Paul do with people that had done him wrong? What did he do? Remember a couple of times he said in 1 Timothy 1, Hymenaeus and Alexander, he said, I have delivered to Satan, but they may learn not to blaspheme. I'm not going to deal with them. I'm going to give them over to the devil. He said that twice, 1 Corinthians 5, 5. A young man had cohabitated with his father's wife. He said, give his flesh to the devil for destruction. He didn't say hold resentment against him because the next book he says you've got to restore him. He's not out of your life. He's in your life. You just don't let resentment keep you from being loving towards him. Your neighbor that comes over and yaps about you, yeah, 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 that's easy to forgive. That's a piece of cake. But a lot of things that people have gone through are not easy, and I know that they're not. 
And I know that some things are very difficult and some things are very, very hard. I'm going to close. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 12. And I want to read verse 14. Now, there's many verses like this in the Scriptures. Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, you'll read things similar to this. But especially in Romans chapter 12 and verse 14, verse 14. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and what? And curse not. Why you curse them and talk about them is because of your resentment, ill will, unforgiveness against them. Period. Verse 15. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that do weep. And be of the same mind toward one another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Verse 17. He says, recompense evil to no man. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of men. Verse 19, and we'll close. Get this. In light of what I've just said. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, whether verbally or mentally. Talking against, talking about, talking hurt, pain, and I wish. But rather give place... Unto wrath. Wow. Let it be, for it is written, let it alone, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. How many people can let God take care of it? Verse 21 says, Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with what? Overcome evil with good. Well, are you forgiving people? Let me give you one more verse. Can I give one more verse? Psalms 37 and verse 11. Or you'll have to do the first part of this verse in order to realize the second part. We were taught this in the Sermon on the Mount recently. But the meek shall inherit the earth. Doesn't it say that in the Sermon on the Mount? Psalm 37, 11. The meek shall inherit the earth. But is it not the meek that are pliable in God's hands whom God can impart to them His ways? You have to be meek. You can't be haughty and arrogant. You can't disagree with God and say, yeah, well, I don't know about yeah, but what am I going to buy? You can't do that. I'll give America society this. A few years ago, they bombed this country. Ran airplanes and killed 3,000 plus people. And nobody is ranting and raving about, let's go bomb them. We don't know who to bomb anyway. But it's like, look, there's more to life than resentment in the past. Let's get over it and go on. Now, that seems to be one element in our society that I have noticed. Get over it and go on. Look, put it behind you and move on. Because if you can't, you can't move on. Put your childhood behind you. Put the damage done to you in the molestation or the rape or the denial or the rejection from your parents or whoever. Put it behind you. You cannot take it to heaven. You can't. The second part of that verse says, that the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves 
in the abundance of peace. Peace, peace, wonderful peace coming down from the Father above. What happens when we are people of peace? We don't make war. We don't encourage war. We don't stir the war pot. We're at peace with each other because God is a God of peace. Are you at peace this morning? Well, if you're not, won't you think about it? Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would for sure deliver us from evil. From evil thoughts, evil thinking, evil designs, evil experiences, evil memories. Anything, Lord, that you're against and that you oppose, ask you to deliver us from it. And we realize this morning, sitting here, that a lot of things in our lives have happened because the devil's design was early on to destroy us, to keep us from going on, to turn us against God and His way. But we know that you have broken through all of that in our lives. You've opened our eyes. You've showed us things that we need to see. And if we're willing, we can be free this morning. We can be free. We can be free from all of them, from everything. And I ask you to bless this crowd this morning with that. Make us to deal with our lives, but bring us out to a well-watered place a peaceful place into your kingdom. I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.